Well, church, this morning we are in Mark 14 once again as we continue. We'll finish Mark 14 this morning as we make our way toward Easter and the resurrection in Mark chapter 16. But today we'll be in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, whether electronic or paper, go ahead and turn there and I'll read it for our hearing. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, Mark writes these words. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants, girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's Word. You know, before Karen and I moved to uh, Fate, we lived for ten years in the city of Rowlett. And Rowlett's obviously located right there, just inside the Rockwall and Dallas County line. So it's in Dallas County. Uh, much of it is, and we lived in the Dallas County section of Rowlett. And so um, during that time, I was going through seminary, and I received during seminary a number of jury summons. Okay? Um, I had the luxury of being in school at the time, and so I was able to exempt myself for those purposes and reasons. However, once I finished seminary, I received another jury summons, and I no longer had an out. And so I returned the summons, and I showed up in court that day for jury selection, 
And as they brought all the jurors from the holding tank into the courtroom and the prosecution began to ask their questions and the defense began to ask their questions, I, little did I know how this whole process worked. Um, I took civics in high school, but I didn't remember a single thing about it. Uh, but I walked into the courtroom and I'm sitting there and they're asking all kinds of questions and they're going along. The, the prosecution's ruling out certain jurors, the defense is ruling out certain jurors, and I had a low juror number. You see where this is going, right? And so, uh, at the end of the day, whenever they sat the jury, I was seated with them. And so the case was, um, what the prosecution, the, the, the district attorney was trying to bring forth was first-degree manslaughter charges against a young man in Dallas who had been riding in a car with his friends uh, with a handgun. The handgun was discharged from the back seat, went through the chest cavity of the driver in the front seat, uh, the car crashed into an embankment and the driver ultimately would die from the wounds that were inflicted. Right? And so they sought this first degree manslaughter charges because in the prosecutor's office, the other two gentlemen who were riding in the car, the one who was in the back seat who held the gun, um, and the one who was in the, was actually the charge of being brought against him, but the other witness was in the front seat. And in the prosecutor's office leading up to trial, they had told the prosecutor, they had told the district attorney that the gentleman in the back seat had the rev it was a revolver, and he had the revolver spinning the chamber with one bullet in it saying, who's going to get it, who's going to get it, who's going to get it? And so the prosecutor, you know, they seat the jury, they put us up onto the stand, uh, put, the, put the witness up on the stand, and the prosecutor begins her line of questioning. And during that line of questioning, she gets to the point where she begins to ask of the witness about what he saw and what he heard that day as they rode in the car together. And she asked about the statement of the young man in the back seat spinning the chamber saying, who's going to get it? And when the witness got onto the stand, he began to crawfish. Now, I grew up in South Louisiana. Crawfish means he began to back up. Okay, he began to walk back the statement that he'd made in the prosecutor's office. So the prosecutor, you could tell, was none too happy about this. And so she begins to impeach her own witness on the witness stand. Right? Saying that what you're saying today is not what you told us in office as we led up to this trial. Right? You're bearing false testimony. You're bearing false witness today before this jury and before this court and before this judge. It was not a good day for the prosecution. Okay? Uh, ultimately, just so you know, we ended up finding the young man guilty of a lesser charge because they could not prove the greater charge based upon the lack of witness testimony. So, this young man proved to be a faithless witness. He began to walk back his testimony. And listen, while you may never have been on the stand as a witness in a court of law, listen, every single one of us at junctures in our life are witnesses on the stand in the court of life to testify to the truth. To testify to the truth in general, but also to testify to the truth in particular about who Jesus is. About our ability to identify with Him, to side with Him, to speak on His behalf. And like that young man that day in that courtroom, oftentimes when our palms get sweaty and our pulse begins to race, it begins to quicken because we realize that what we say next could ruin our reputation. That what we say next, right, 
in front of the people we're trying to impress. So what we say next, we, our, our stomach gets nervous and begins to turn because what we say next may jeopardize a relationship with the people that we care about deeply. That what we say next may have ramifications for someone and the way that they interact with us and determine whether or not that relationship that we care about will continue to endure or whether it will end. And we face this type of opportunity on a regular basis with neighbors. We face these kinds of opportunities with friends. We face these kinds of opportunities with family members. Some of us are our own children that we care about deeply. And the question for us that we face in the court of life is will we be a faithful witness? Or will we be a faithless one when it comes to identifying with, speaking on behalf of, and siding with Jesus in those moments where it may cost us something? Now, in this context, in Mark's Gospel, we find another sandwich. Okay, We've talked about these sandwiches before. Right? That Mark layers two slices of bread with a piece of meat in the middle. Okay? Uh, where Mark will start a story um, and begin to set up the, the context and then he'll break from that story, tell another story, and then come back to the story that he started at the end. Okay? And that all that works together to communicate something to us. And in this particular sandwich is about the stark contrast between being a faithful witness and being a faithless witness. Let me show it to you. In verses 53 and 54, we're told that Jesus is being brought before the Sanhedrin, which was a council comprised of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And while Jesus is on trial, Peter has followed him at a safe distance, right? Not to be caught up in the fray with Jesus, not to too closely identify with Jesus. Now, Peter had just remembered previously in chapter 14, said, Jesus, if I have to die, I won't abandon you, Jesus. Even if everyone turns away, Jesus, I'm going to be with you, right? Jesus, I'm going to ride with you until this thing is done. And yet here he is at a safe distance to avoid being detected as one of Jesus' disciples. Then you drop down into verses 66 to 72, and despite all of Peter's attempts, Right to, to prevent detection as a disciple of Jesus, he's fingered three times by the bystanders and the servant girl of the high priest as being a disciple of Jesus. And three times he does what? He denies it. Fulfilling Jesus' prediction from earlier in Mark chapter 14. But in between, so you see a faithless witness in Peter's life, but in between, in verses 55 to 65, you see Jesus clearly and faithfully testifying to the truth of who He is. So on the, the two pieces of bread show us the faithless witness of Peter, and yet the meat in the middle shows us the faithful witness of Jesus Himself. And listen, church, this text teaches at least three things. Many more. There's like five sermons here, but I can only preach one today. Um, but teaches us at least these three things about grace in the midst of our failures to be a faithful witness. Because we've all failed, haven't we? We've all failed to say the things that we ought to have said in the time in which we should have said them. Or when we have said them, we've said them in ways that are, are not compassionate but condemnatory toward others who are trapped in bondage to sin. Right? And so we've all failed to be a faithful witness. But, I, but so I want you to know from this text, the first thing is this, is that no one, no one is above failure when it comes to being a faithful witness. See, so many of us think that if we'd have been with Jesus during His earthly ministry, 
Like whenever he was teaching, whenever he was preaching, whenever he was healing, whenever he was delivering, whenever he was walking the face of the earth, that we'd be so much bolder in our witness for him. And yet this text cuts against the grain of that way of thinking. See, earlier in this chapter, Jesus predicts that each of his disciples would abandon him, that each of them would betray him, that each of them would deny him. He says, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. In other words, whenever they come for me, you guys are going to be gone. And that's exactly what happens. At the end of the text that we looked at last week, whenever they come to arrest Jesus, it says, all fled. Everyone ran away, including this unnamed follower of Jesus, who when he is seized, rests himself away from those who had seized him, leaves his clothes in their hands, and runs away naked. Right? When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And in response to that, Peter says, not me. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I tell you the truth, that tonight before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me on three separate occasions. And so Peter does. Warming himself by the fire in the courtyard while Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin upstairs. And in verse 71, church, when he's pressed, Peter's pressed for the third time about his relationship to Jesus. Does he know him? Is he one of his followers? Is he one of his disciples? Peter fails, listen, spectacularly. <laughs> okay? Spectacularly. Because in verse 71, listen to what he says, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, I don't normally like to do this, but because our English translations are so good, but in this particular place, I think there's room for improvement. Because the words invoke a curse in our English text is the word in Greek anathematize. Okay? We've heard that word before, right? Even in our English vocabulary, to anathematize or to an anathema essentially is to pronounce a curse on something or someone. Okay? But the word himself is not in the Greek text. So when Peter pronounces a curse, the, the, it doesn't say he pronounces a curse and then the next word is on himself, right? Nor is this verb in the Greek text the reflexive verb. Now, a little grammar lesson for you this morning. We've got to do these every once in a while, okay? Uh, because most of us don't remember grammar from grade school. Uh, but a reflexive verb essentially is this. It's a verb that indicates action being performed by a subject on themselves, so, right, I wash myself, or I bathe myself, or I brush my teeth, right? I'm doing something to myself. This is not a reflexive verb. This is a transitive verb, which means that the subject doing the action needs a direct object upon which to act. Okay? So the word himself is not there. It's not a reflexive verb. So when Peter calls down a curse, he's not calling down a curse on himself. But he's calling a curse down on his master to save his own skin. That's why I say Peter fails spectacularly to be a faithful witness when pressed, when at risk. So when the rooster crows for the second time and Peter his, like, snaps to his senses and he begins to weep, it's not just like he sheds a tear, it's like an ugly cry in the courtyard. Okay, that's what's happening right now as Peter denies Jesus for the third time. And I want you to know something, church, that if Peter, if Peter is not beyond failure, 
Peter who walked with Jesus. Peter who had just confessed his loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. Peter who probably had the greatest accountability structure ever known to man with the very Son of God walking in his midst along with the other apostles and disciples there around him. Then none of us is beyond failure when it comes to being a faithful witness. None of us is beyond failure. It's the first thing that we learn here. But the second thing that we learn here, listen, is just as important, if not more so. And it's this, is that no failure is beyond grace. No failure is beyond grace. You see, Peter, when you read the rest of his story, as Paul Harvey would say, right, you see that he's utterly healed by the grace of Jesus. In fact, you you, you say, well... I don't see that anywhere in this text. Let me tell you, the very inclusion of this text, where it's located, is evidence that Peter is healed fully and completely by the grace of Jesus. Here's why. Many scholars believe that Mark's Gospel is the first-hand eyewitness account of Peter's experiences with Jesus. And here's several reasons why. One reason is because there are many general references throughout Mark's Gospel to the other disciples. But so often there are very specific references to Simon Peter. In addition, there's nothing that moves, really moves the storyline forward in Mark's Gospel where Peter is not present and not named. In all these very significant occasions in Mark's Gospel, Peter is there... And Peter is called by name. In addition, there are these small little evidences of eyewitness account that it's not something that was made up and inserted. Right? For instance, in verse 66 of our text, we're told that Peter was below in the courtyard while Jesus was above on trial before the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is conducting its trial in the second floor while Peter is in the courtyard. Who would have known that's where Peter was located and that's where Jesus was located? That's where all this took place other than Peter himself. Because it didn't say anything about the rest of the disciples being there. Who would have known that other than Peter? In addition, listen, you wouldn't have made this kind of story up. And listen, other leaders in the early church would have wanted to suppress this. Right? This does not look good for the leader of the early church to be throwing his master under the bus in his hour of need. That didn't look good for anyone. In fact, every other culture leading up to the, 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 essentially the, the founding of Christianity and it's beginning to spread across the globe, listen, it was not a guilt culture, but it was a shame culture. Here's what that means. In fact, many Eastern cultures still operate this way. It was an honor-shame culture. Okay? So it wasn't this personal guilt that you felt, but it was this shame that you brought upon yourself, that you brought upon your family, that you brought upon your community, that you brought upon your, your, the, the people that you were engaged in relationship with. Right? You either, by your actions, you either brought honor to yourself and to your family, or you brought shame to yourself and to your family. And that's, that's the kind of culture that ancient Judaism was. That's the kind of culture that the ancient cultures were. I said, listen, no one would include this story, wanted this story included, because it would have brought great shame. 
because of Peter's denial, because of Peter's betrayal, because of Peter's curse that he calls down upon his very Lord and Master, no one would have included this other than Peter himself. No one. One scholar, Richard Balcom, says that the denials of Peter in chapter 14 is a leading piece of evidence that the Gospel of Mark is his own eyewitness account. Listen to what he says. He says, No one in the early church other than Peter himself would have dared or wished to highlight the weakness and failure of the most revered and significant leader in the entire Christian movement with the candor that Mark's narrative does. Therefore, the only possible source for the account of Peter's denial would be Peter himself. Or here you have the leader of the early church who stood and preached with power on the day of Pentecost. Remember when at the day of Pentecost when everybody's like, these dudes are drunk and it's not even lunch yet. Right? They've been hitting the bottle hard. And Peter gets up and what does he say? No, this is what was prophesied in the prophet Joel that God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and young men would dream dreams, old men would dream dreams, they would prophesy, have visions. So this, these, these people speaking in languages that never learn the tongues that are coming out of their mouths, this is not drunkenness. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this has all come about because this Jesus whom you crucified, and he goes on to preach the gospel and tell them it was God's plan from the foundations of the world to bring down judgment upon sin on Jesus. This is the same Peter who stands with power on the day of Pentecost denying he knows and cursing the very name of Jesus. And yet when this incident in Mark's Gospel is all over, Peter becomes the leading apostle because he plunged his failure into the grace of Jesus through repentance. And we read about this in John chapter 21. After Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, when he meets his disciples on the beach, In John chapter 21, verse 15, says this, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. When Jesus meets Peter there on the beach that morning, he asks him three times about his affection and love for himself. Why three times? Because there were three denials in the courtyard and there were three questions asked of Peter on the beach that morning. For each denial, another question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice the first question. Do you love me more than these? Because that's what Peter had said, isn't it? That even if they all run away, Jesus, I'm going to be there. Right? You and I are going to ride and die, Jesus. Like this is, it's, We're, we're going to take it to the end. But notice Peter makes no more bold claims here. He finally says, Lord, you know everything. You can search my heart. 
You know that I love you. And so what does Jesus say as, as Peter plunges his failure into the very grace of how gracious Jesus is to him to restore him? And Jesus says on each occasion, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. What is he saying? Lead my church. So the greatest failure in the courtyard becomes the most prominent leader in the early, <clears throat> excuse me, in the early church, because he plunges his failure into the grace of Jesus through repentance and is restored and healed to be a faithful witness where he had been faithless in the courtyard. The day of Pentecost, he is faithful. Throughout the book of Acts, he is faithful to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. In fact, even in extra-biblical writings, we see that when Nero began to persecute Christians in the Roman Empire in AD 65, it became dangerous to identify with Jesus publicly as a leader or teacher. And Peter, without any hesitation, without any reservation, he says, take me. I'm with him. And Nero crucifies Jesus as tradition would hold upside down because Peter did not believe he was worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord had been. And Clement of Alexandria, one of the African church fathers, wrote in AD 85, let us remember the noble examples of our generation through jealousy and hatred, the greatest and most just pillars of our church were persecuted and put to death. Even Peter, at last having delivered his testimony, Departed at a place of glory prepared for him. Even Peter at last, having been a faithful witness to Jesus, was strung up. There is no failure beyond grace, church. So while you may be sitting here this morning going, yeah, tell me something I don't know. I failed. I've been a faithless witness. There are so many times where I remember things that I should have said or shouldn't have said in the way that I said them. But church, know this. There is no failure that is beyond the grace of Jesus. And here's why. I'll spend the rest of our time this morning on this. Why is there no failure beyond grace? And here's why. Because the faithful witness, he is our advocate. The faithful witnesses are advocate. Look, in the, the meat in the middle of the sandwich contains the story of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. Right? Before the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And in verses 53 to 59, they run all kinds of witnesses out against Jesus. Right? But their stories don't match. Every time they bring somebody else up, it's like they, they just can't get their story straight. They didn't have the meeting beforehand in the office. Okay, They're crawfishing on their testimony. Everything's kind of going awry. Right? So they cannot align their stories. And then finally in verse 60, the high priest stands up to his feet and he poses two questions to Jesus. And the first question is, aren't you going to defend yourself? Aren't you going to counter these charges that are being brought against you? Aren't you going to say something? Because at this point, Jesus had been silent. Like Isaiah chapter 53 said, like a lamb to the slaughter, he remains silent before his accusers, before his oppressors. And then the second question, which is more of a confession actually in the mouth of the high priest. He says, you are the Christ, son of the most blessed, aren't you? 
that the clearest confession of who Jesus is in all of Mark's gospel comes out of the mouth of his greatest opponent. And to that question, Jesus finally responds with an astonishing affirmation. In fact, it's so astonishing that the high priest tears his garments and says, I rest my case. Because in verse 62, Jesus says these three astonishing things. Yes, I am. I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the long-awaited deliverer of God's people who would lead them faithfully as their prophet, priest, and king. He says, in addition, that they, that he, they would see the Son of Man seated at the hand of power, the right hand of power. The Son of Man, as we've said before, is this image out of Daniel chapter 7 as this one who's been bestowed all power, all authority, all dominion to rule and judge the world. That's who the Son of Man is in Jewish tradition. That's who they understood him to be. And Jesus says, I am the Christ, and you will see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, the place of authority, the place of, of rule, the place of dominion, the place of judgment. I'm on trial here, but ultimately I'm the judge who's going to judge everything. And then, thirdly, he says that they would see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now listen, the clouds of earth are like just water vapor up there, right? They get big and bold and swell and they pour out rain on the earth and they have thunderstorms that come through and they drop a bunch of snow every once in a while. But the clouds of heaven are not like the clouds of earth. The clouds of heaven are the Shekinah glory of God that would descend upon the temple in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, yes, I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king. Yes, I'm the judge of all the earth. He's been given authority as the Son of Man to judge everyone and everything. And you're going to see me coming in all of my glory one day. And so the high priest tears his garment and says, I rest my case. Haven't you heard enough? And so what do they do? They all say he is guilty of a sin punishable by death. And they begin to spit on him. They begin to mock him. They begin to cover his face. And they begin to beat him saying, prophesy, who has hit you, Jesus? Who has hit you? If you know all things, who's hitting you right now? And they turn him over to the guards, and it says the guards received him with blows. In other words, as soon as they take him into custody, they continue to beat and torture him. And it's at this point, church, it's at this point when you see in this particular passage when Jesus says, I am the judge of the world who is now standing under judgment. The one who deserves, has the rights and privileges and authority to judge everything is now being judged by a human earthly court. You have God, as C.S. Lewis says, God's in the dock, right? He's on trial. He's being judged. And you see this beautiful picture of substitution here because Peter, listen, he's being charged with something true, isn't he? They're saying three times, you're a disciple, you're a disciple, you're a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus. That is true. And Peter backs away from that affirmation. And yet you see Jesus being charged here with something that isn't true. He's not a terrorist who's going with a bomb to blow up the temple. Right? That's not what he was talking about. Yet that's what they're charging him with. However, Peter goes free. And Jesus is convicted 
See, Jesus would end up suffering unjustly at the hands of his accusers, being mocked and spit upon and beaten because of his faithful witness. While Peter would end up going free because of his faithless one. Listen, church, I'm here to tell you this morning, that is why there is no failure that is beyond grace. Because there was one who was judged in our place. You see, the very words that Jesus spoke earlier in Mark chapter 14, you're like, where's the practical stuff? We're going to get there. This is the most practical thing I can tell you, actually. But listen, earlier in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus says, this is the new covenant that I've inaugurated in my blood, which is poured out for a few? Is that what he said? For many. Jesus begins to spill his blood here for many as he is judged. The first time he is struck, the first drop of blood that falls is falling because Jesus is receiving the judgment that Peter and every other faithless witness deserved to receive. He is struck as he stands before the people to be judged. Now, all throughout the Bible, normally in the Old Testament, it was the people who stood before the Lord. But you see, you see pictures of this, of this, the Lord standing before the people scattered throughout the Old Testament. Because normally in the Old Testament, when Israel sinned, they stood before the Lord to give an account for their actions. Right? God was the judge. The people were the defendants. Right? So here you are. You've got to answer to God. You've got to be accountable to God for your actions. Right? And yet, here Jesus is not, the, the people aren't standing before him, he is standing before them, receiving judgment in the same way that in Exodus chapter 17 is a beautiful picture of this. Because in Exodus chapter 17, God has led his people out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, bondage, and captivity. He's leading them through the wilderness. And as he leads them through the wilderness, what are they doing? They're grumbling. Huh. Does that sound familiar? Right? They're complaining. Right? Did you bring us out here to die? Right? Things were easier back there. Can't we just go back? At least we had food. We knew where it was going to come from. We're thirsty. We're hungry. So they're complaining and grumbling to Aaron and Moses. And God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders and of Israel. In other words, God says this, listen, I'm not going to bring the people before me to answer to them, for them to answer to me. I'm going to stand before the people on the rock, and Moses, take the rod that you used to part the Red Sea, and I want you to come, and I want you to strike the rock. And when the rock is struck, with God proverbially, metaphorically standing there on the rock, and the rock is struck, outflows what? Water to quench their thirst. And I tell you something, church, that was a beautiful foreshadowing of another place in which God Himself would stand before the people and be struck, and whenever He is struck out of that rock, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock was Christ there in the wilderness, and that as He is struck, outflow what? Streams of living water, which will never run dry. 
which will always satisfy every thirst and longing that you and I have. Because He was judged in our place. He was struck for us. Look at that exchange. Peter who was faithless, Jesus who was faithful, one in place of the other. But listen, Jesus is not only our faithful witness in front of this earthly court here in Mark chapter 14, no. And we know this because of Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, where where Luke recounts this same uh, exchange between Jesus and Peter about where Peter makes these promises and declarations, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Luke 22, verses 32 and 33, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And notice what Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, look at what Jesus says. I pray that you wouldn't fail, but you're gonna. (laughs) Because when you've turned again, when you've come back in repentance, when you've been restored, He says, strengthen your brothers, feed the sheep, tend the lambs, lead the church, build their faith. Peter. Now, Jesus foreshadows John 21 where He commissions Peter to lead the early church when He says, when you've turned. But notice what He says. When I, I prayed for you, Jesus, or Peter, I interceded for you. I represented you before another. Satan demanded to sift you. I wish we had time. I would go in, into what we talked about in the spiritual warfare series, but if, I, I don't have time, so go back and listen to it. But listen. And He says, I, I prayed for you. Jesus says, I've gone to represent you. But what do you mean? He's not even in court yet. He's not even before the Sanhedrin yet, so there must be another court before which Jesus is representing Peter and you and I. There's a heavenly council before which Jesus represents us. He's not only our faithful witness in front of this earthly court, but a faithful witness in front of the heavenly court. And you see that mentioned in two places, I believe, in the New Testament. First, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 uh, through chapter 2, verse 1, where, P, where John writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. We have someone who's advocating our case. Someone who's pleading for us before God in our place when we sin, when we fail. Or Romans chapter 8 when Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elected? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Pleading our case before God the Father. And what is it that Jesus is pleading for? Before the heavenly court. Before God Himself. Jesus is not standing up there pleading for mercy. He's not. And listen, this idea of substitution, of the faithful witness being our advocate, right? it will never 